what we're really looking at in this next series that's going to run for the next uh, five or six weeks is we're really looking at idols, right? Idols and God. And, and which ones in our life are we treating as real? And which ones in our life are we maybe ignoring? And we, this, this series is based around a book, uh, a, a book by a guy named Timothy Keller. You might have heard us talk about him before. He's the senior pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. And he's, he's written this book called Counterfeit Gods. And, and it's all about idols. It's all about the idols in our life. And I just want to encourage you, we, we don't have any copies here today, but they are on their way. Right, So we'll have copies for sale of this book in the foyer from next week, and, and they'll be pretty cheap. It's also on Kindle, but I just want to encourage you to pick up a copy, right? because what we're going to do here today is going to be awesome. It's going to be fantastic. I guarantee you, right? I bought my preaching handkerchief. It's going to be great, but, but we can only go through so much in the next 30 minutes. Right? We can only cover so much. And at Equippers Church, we so wholeheartedly believe that church is about more than just hearing a message on a Sunday. Although that's great. Church is about reading our Bibles. Church is about praying. And, and church is about looking for what God wants to say to us outside of the space. Right? And, and so ideas will come. You'll hear ideas from the book. But grab the book and give it a read because it will go further than we can here. Is that all right? So uh, I want to encourage you one more time. Get the book. It's a good book. I've read it. Uh, I've read it twice now. I like it. But uh, this morning, we're going to start this series by, by looking at a story in, in Genesis chapter 22. And it's a story that you probably haven't thought of as, as about idolatry before. I know in, until I read Counterfeit Gods, I didn't think of this story as an idolatry story. But it's the story of Abraham and Isaac, right? And it's the story that, that for me, it's been an uncomfortable story all my life. There's some stories I read in the Bible that I totally get. There's some stories in the Bible that I need someone to explain to me. And this story took on a new light for me just recently. So what we're going to do is uh, we're going to turn to Genesis chapter 22, and we're going to read from verses 2 to 8. Uh, we'll put it up on the screen for you. There you go. Look at that. Beautiful. And we are reading from the message version in case you've got uh, a bunch of different Bibles under your seat. But read along with me. It says this. He said, this is God speaking. Take your dear son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I'll point out to you. Abraham got up early in the morning and saddled his donkey. He took two of his young servants and his son Isaac. He had split the wood for the burnt offering. He set out for the place God had directed him. On the third day, he looked up and saw the place in the distance. Abraham told his two young servants, stay here with the donkey. The boy and I are going over there to worship. Then we'll come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and gave it to Isaac, his son, to carry. He carried the flint and the knife, and the two of them went off together. Isaac said to, his, said to Abraham, his father, Father, yes, my son, we have flint and wood, but where's the sheep for the burnt offering? Abraham said, Son, God will see to it that there's a sheep for the burnt offering, and they kept on walking together. Why don't you bow your heads with me, and we're going to pray. God, I thank you for this opportunity. I thank you for this chance to, to gather together as your people and to look at your word, God. I thank you that, that you're always speaking, that you're always saying something, and that this morning we choose to collectively lean in. We choose to lean into what it is you're saying, what it is you want to say to us, God. We pray that, that we wouldn't leave here the same. We didn't come here just to hang out and to drink some coffee. We came here to be impacted by you, that you are the living God and that you want to give a living word to us, God, that you want to breathe into our spirits, that we would be different when we walk out, that we would be your people filled with your breath, God. And so I pray this morning that it wouldn't be my words, that it wouldn't be my efforts, but that you would say something to us all here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. 
See, I don't know about you, but when I read Genesis chapter 22, especially that start, I get uncomfortable. Right? I, I don't know how you feel about child sacrifice. I don't know if you're pro or anti. I haven't really heard it in the media as a, as a uh, current kind of argument. There's not really a pro-child sacrifice lobby group that I'm aware of in New Zealand, which I'm glad for, right? Um, that, that, that's good. That's good. That's, that's just, that's good. Right, but this, this story, I don't know if anyone can read it and, and, and get past it without sort of wincing. And especially because this story has, has generated so many horrible stories, so many instances of people, I think, just getting it a little bit wrong. The one that always sticks in my mind is I, I read about a story of a, a man who, who was a pastor, and, and he had a son. And he took his son, and he took him up to the top of a hill, and he doesn't kill him. Let's just get that out of the way, right? But he takes him up to the top of this hill, and he opens his Bible, and he reads this story to his son. He looks his son dead in the eyes and says, son, if God asked me to kill you, I'd do it. Right, which, which I understand what he's trying to do. I understand what he's trying to communicate to his son, that there is nothing in his life to him that is greater than God. And I haven't had children, right? But I think maybe if that was me, I'd do it a little bit differently. Maybe if that was me, what I was trying to communicate to my son might be lost in the cold-hearted fact that I just told him that I would kill him. Right, maybe that, that diluted the message a little bit. There's been so many instances where this has been used to justify violence. Right, if God says to hurt someone, it's all right to do it, because look, he did it there, and Abraham is the father of our faith. This, this story has been so misinterpreted. And this morning, I, I want to look at it. I want to look at this story, and, and maybe it can help us understand what idols are and why they're bad. Right, because so often we can stand here and we can say, don't have any idols, you should have no idols before God. Idols are bad. But if I was you and I was sitting there, I'd kind of be thinking, why? Right? Like, I've got one God, and to be honest, he's working out pretty well for me. So why not just add a few more? Right? Why not, why not add a few more to the wagon? If God's working out for me, why not add a few more gods that might cover me in some areas that God might miss? Right? That's, that's a prevalent attitude throughout much of the world. Let's just lump all the gods on the wagon, and one of them will get us through. One of them will sort us out. You might as well hedge all your bets. Right, so this morning I want to look at why, why is an idol bad? And to address this question, I think we first need to look at, at what an idol is. Right, what is an idol? And it, it's important that we realize that an idol is anything more important to you than God. Right, that's just the basic definition. An idol is anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. Anything that you seek to give you what only God can give you. Right, and an idol can be anything which is why idols make us uncomfortable. Because an idol can be a good thing. An idol can be family and children. An idol can be career and making money or achievement and, and critical acclaim or saving face and social standing. An idol can be a romantic relationship, peer approval, competence and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty or your brains, a great political cause, a great social cause, your morality and virtue, or even church and religion. Right, anything can be an idol. Nothing is off the table. And so often, I don't know about you, but I think about idols and I think about them over there, right? Those people, those people in that country who worship a wrong God, those people over there who worship the wrong thing, that person who's in addiction, but an idol is whatever you look at and you say in your heart, if I have that, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning, then I'll know I have value, then I will feel significant and secure. See, there are many ways to define an idol, but, but maybe one of the best is our worship, right? What, 
do we worship? This series, God's at War, is really all about our worship. And, and it's easy to look at here, us here this morning and say, well, we know what we worship. We're in church on a Sunday. It can't really get any more obvious, Jono. We're here worshiping God, which is true, and, and that's fantastic. But, but it's important to realize we're not the only ones worshiping this morning. And we don't only worship on Sundays. See, there are people all over Wellington this morning who are worshiping something. There are people right now who are on the sports field, and they're worshiping sports. There are people right now who have just finished tuning in to, to the nation on Channel 3, and they're worshiping politics. There are people still in bed nursing that hangover who were worshiping last night. Right? We are all worshiping something. The question is, what are we worshiping? Because the Bible calls anything that we worship that isn't God an idol. See, I don't know about you, but have you ever wondered why the, the first commandment is, thou shalt have no gods before me? Right? It's an interesting one to start with. Why does this come first? Maybe, maybe it's because we never break the other commandments without breaking the first one. See, see maybe, we, we, why do we fail to, to love? Why do we fail to keep promises? Why do we fail to live unselfishly? See, we wouldn't lie. We wouldn't lie to someone unless we had first made something, right? Human approval or, or reputation or, or power over others or financial advantage more important and valuable to our hearts than God, right? So, so that's what an idol is. Who's glad they came to church this morning? It's like, yeah, let's just get the slap in the face over and done with it at the start, right? But an idol is almost anything and an idol is something we all have. And we probably all have more than one. I know I have plenty of idols in my life. Right, so if that's what an idol is, why did we read the, the bit about child sacrifice, right? How does that help? Let's go back to our reading. Uh, it's important to realize that, that one of the central figures of the Bible is Abraham, right? If, if you've been in church enough, you've probably sung a few songs about Abraham, about him being a father and um, other stuff. And, you know, Abraham is, we, we talk about him a lot, right? Abraham's important. In fact, Abraham is so important that he's not just considered the father of, of the Christian faith. He's considered um, an important figure in the Jewish faith and, and, in, and in Muslim faith, right? He's, he's a big dude. He's got a lot of, of influence stretching out throughout the world. But in Genesis chapter 12, God came to Abraham, right? God comes to Abraham and he makes him a promise, he comes to him and he says that he will bless all of the nations of the world through Abraham and his descendants if Abraham would obey him faithfully, right? And for this to happen, Abraham has to do something. It's a promise, but it's a promise that's conditional upon Abraham doing something. And what he has to do is go. He has to leave his friends and family. He has to leave his comfortability. Abraham was called by God to leave all that was familiar right? His friends, most of his family, everything that he believed meant safety, prosperity, and peace. And he was called to go out into the wilderness, uncertain of his destination, right? God calls him to go, to give him, to give up nearly all of the hopes and things that his heart desires. And he did, right? Abraham says, yes. But, but what's important to realize is while God's calling Abraham to give up all of his hopes, everything his heart is invested in. At the same time, God gives him something else. God gives him a hope, right? He says to him that the prophecy is that all of the nations of the world will be blessed through Abraham and his family. But at this point in time, Abraham's wife, Sarah, has been unable to conceive, right? He's got this, this prophecy that his family is going to bless the world, but he doesn't have a child in his line. 
right? He doesn't have a child with, with himself and his wife, Sarah. He doesn't have an inheritor of his blessing, right? Biologically speaking, having children seemed impossible for them. And God's promised Abraham that he would have a son. And Abraham holds on to this promise and the years turn into decades, right? The decades go by and, and the promise becomes more and more difficult to, to, to believe, but finally, after Abraham was over 100 years old and Sarah was over the age of 90, she gave birth to a son. She gave birth to a son named Isaac. And Isaac is the answer to the question Abraham has been asking for most of his life. God, where is my promise? Where is my blessing? Where is this prophecy? See, it's important to realize that no man in history has ever longed for a son more than Abraham. No man in history has ever given up everything else to wait for something in such a way as Abraham has. He is so heavily invested in this promise. And it's important to ask the question, had he been waiting and sacrificing for God? Or, or has he been waiting and sacrificing for Isaac? See, what is his, is his heart's desire? Is God just a means to an end? See, when we read from, from Genesis chapter 12 to 21, we might think that the birth of Isaac is the end, right? It's the crescendo of the story. It's the climax. It's, it's the happy ending. The credits are going to roll. It's all done, right? That would make sense. Here is Abraham. He's been called out. He's, he's waited and he's trusted for so long. And finally, his promise comes to fruition. Finally, things go well for him, right? And yet, to our surprise, Abraham gets another call from God. He's been waiting. He's been trusting. He, he's been waiting on God. And, and, and then God comes to him when his promise comes to fruition and calls him to do one more thing. And what he calls him to do couldn't be more shocking. Right? He, God says to Abraham, take your dear son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I'll point out to you. In case we're not understanding, in case it's ambiguous to us, God tells Abraham to kill his son, to kill his promise. Not only his promise, but the thing that God has promised him. God tells Abraham, take the thing that I promised you, take the thing that you've been waiting on all your life and kill it. Even if this wasn't a person, that would be a ridiculously hard thing to do. And yet it's his son, his flesh and blood, someone that God loves, someone that God has given to him. And God says to him, kill him. See, what's happening here is that Isaac has become everything to Abraham. Right, Abraham's affection has turned into adoration. Previously, Abraham's meaning in life is built on God's word, but now it was becoming dependent on Isaac's love and well-being. Right, the center of Abraham's life was shifting. See, many readers over the years have, have read this and have recoiled in horror. I read this and I recoil in horror because it makes us ask, what kind of God would ask a man to kill his son? Right? What kind of God would ask that question of us? Do we want to serve a God who would ask us to kill a child? It makes me uncomfortable. To understand this, we need to do a brief history of religion, right? Super brief. History of religion in like two minutes. It starts with, with Adam and Eve, right? Things are good. They're in the Garden of Eden. They're in relationship with God. They have free will because you can't love someone if you can't choose, right? So there they are. They're, they're in relationship with God. Things are good. Then they fall. 
right? We all know this story. If it's been your first time in church this morning, you know the idea of Adam and Eve. They fall, and now they're not in relationship with God. Now they're separated by this thing called sin, right? And then we have, have hundreds of years later, the descendants of Adam and Eve, the, the early humans, they're in this space where they've come to the realization that their survival as a species, their survival as people was dependent on, on a couple of things, food and water, right? To live, to make it to tomorrow, you need to have enough food and enough water. And, and they realized that for food to grow, it's important that, that it gets enough water in proper proportion, right? If you get too little water, then your crops wilt and die and you don't have anything to drink. If you get too much water, then the water washes away your crops and you've only got water to drink and you're not going to make it very far with that either, right? And then they realize that not only do they need water in just the right proportions, they also need sunshine, right? And they need sunshine in just the right proportions, just enough sun to help their crops to grow and to not dry up all the water, but, but not too much sun that, that their crops dry up and, and everything dies and not too little sun that nothing grows. They're dependent on these things being just Right, right, these basic observations brought people to the conclusion that they were dependent on unseen forces that they could not control to survive. And the belief arose that these forces are either on your side or they're not, that they're for you or they're not for you. And how do you keep these forces on your side? How do you keep them friendly towards you? The next time you have a harvest, the next time you take a proportion of that harvest and you offer it on an altar as a sign of your gratitude. You offer it to the gods and goddesses to keep them on your side. Now, now imagine what happened when the people would offer a sacrifice, but then it didn't rain, or the sun didn't shine, or the animals still got diseases, or they were unable to have children. Obviously, they concluded that they didn't offer enough, right? And so there they were, they offered more, and they offered more, because built in from the ground level of this religious idea is anxiety. Right, you never know where you stood with the gods. See, the gods are angry. The gods are demanding. And if you don't please them, they will punish you by bringing calamity. If you don't please them, you'll know about it because you'll die pretty soon. Right, but, but what if things went well? What if things are going nicely? What if the gods are smiling on you? It's just enough sunshine, just enough rain. The crops are going well. well obviously, you have to thank the gods because you want them to stay happy with you. And so you offer them a little bit more. What a, you, you offer them just enough to show how grateful you were, but how would you know if you'd offered enough to let them know that you were thankful? Right, if things went well, you'd never know if you'd been grateful enough or often enough, and if things didn't go well, then clearly you hadn't done enough. Either way, you're anxious. Whether things went well or not, the answer was always sacrifice more, give more, offer more, because you never knew where you stood with the gods. You never knew if they were happy with you or angry with you, and so you'd offer part of your crop, right? Maybe you'd offer a goat, maybe a lamb, maybe a cow, maybe a few cows, maybe some birds. See, the very nature of religion is that everything escalated because in your anxiety to please the gods, you kept having to offer more. And what's the most valuable thing you can offer? What's the thing that you can offer that would truly show the gods, this is all I have? I can't offer you more without dying myself. What would be the most precious thing that you could give to the gods to show how serious you were about earning their favor? A child. Right, can you see how at the edges of the Old Testament, child sacrifice is lurking? 
right? This is what everyone else is doing. This is how things work. You offer just enough to get the gods on your side. And if you think they're really angry, you don't have any choice. You have to offer a kid. You have to take your son. See, when God asked Abraham to kill Isaac, Abraham might have been surprised. It might have seemed out of characteristic for God, but he knows people who have. This isn't a weird idea to him. This is the way things go. You offer your children to the gods. See, if we turn back to Genesis chapter 22, uh, this time we're going to read from verses 9 to 13. It, It says this. They arrived at the place to which God had directed him. Abraham built an altar. He laid out the wood. Then he tied up Isaac and laid him on the wood. Abraham reached out and took the knife to kill his son. Just then an angel of God called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Yes, I'm listening. Don't lay a hand on that boy. Don't touch him. Now I know how fearlessly you fear God. You didn't hesitate to place your son, your dear son, on the altar for me. Abraham looked up. He saw a ram caught by its horns in the thicket. Abraham took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. See, our question this morning is what kind of God would ask us to sacrifice a son? What kind of God would ask Abraham to kill Isaac? The first point is not this one. See, my first point this morning is that the idols always kill Isaac. See, in our lives, idolatry is bad because it always breaks us. Every other God in our lives will always kill Isaac. Every other God will always take the thing that you treasure the most, take the thing that means the most to you, and eventually crush it. God is the only one we can turn to in eternity that doesn't kill Isaac. See, God was not saying that you cannot love your son, but that you must not turn a loved one into an idol. See, if anyone puts a child in the place of God, it creates an idolatrous love that will smother the child and strangle your relationship. Right? If God had not intervened, Abraham would have come to love his son more than anything in the world if he did not already do so. Right? If God had not intervened, Abraham would have developed an idolatrous love of his son, and idolatry is always destructive. See, from this perspective, we can see that, that God's rough treatment, God's merciless treatment of Abraham was actually merciful. That what he was doing is that God knew that Isaac was a wonderful gift to Abraham, but he was not safe. Isaac was not safe until Abraham was willing to put God first. See, as long as Abraham never had to choose between Isaac and God, he wouldn't see that his love for Isaac was becoming idolatrous. He wouldn't see that Isaac was becoming his God. And see, we might not realize in our lives, right, where we're turning something into an idol until we have to compare it with God. We might not realize how idolatrous our career is becoming until we're faced with a situation in which telling the truth or, or acting with integrity would mean a serious blow to our professional advancement. And then, In that space, we realize that we're not willing to hurt our career in order to do God's will, right? We're not willing to do what God says if it means hurting our professional advancement. And it's then that we're confronted with the reality that maybe our job has become an idol, right? It's it's not until we, we come to that time of year where we talk about taking up a miracle offering. We start talking about being generous, about giving beyond ourselves, that all of a sudden you're confronted with the reality that maybe money is an idol for you. 
Maybe something's going on in your life where, why, why is it so hard for me to give? Why do I seem to keep on finding reasons, excuses? Why is it so much harder for me to be generous than it is for me to hold on? Why does this come naturally? Maybe it's because it's become an idol. See, Abraham took that journey. He walked up that mountain with Isaac, and it was only after that Abraham could love Isaac properly. See, if if Isaac had become the main hope and joy of Abraham's life, his father would have either over-disciplined him because he needed his son to be perfect or under-disciplined him because he couldn't bear his son's displeasure or both, right? Abraham would have either overindulged his son, but, but he probably would have also become inordinately angry, perhaps even violent with Isaac because his son disappointed him. Why? Because idols always enslave us. Idols always limit us. See, Isaac's love and success would have become Abraham's only identity and joy. Everything of who he is would have been wrapped up in Isaac, and he would have become angry and anxious and depressed if Isaac ever failed to to obey or to love him. Right, And, and Isaac would have failed. Because no son, no, no child, no person can, can bear the full weight of Godhood, right? Idols always kill Isaac. They always take the things we love, take a thing that is so often a good thing, and they ruin it. Because nothing can ever handle or deserve the weight of Godhood. God is showing us in this story that the human heart takes a good thing like a, like a successful career or, or love or, or material possessions or family and it turns them into the ultimate thing, right? So often in life, the very thing upon which we build our happiness often turns to dust in our hands because we built our happiness upon it. That thing that we're saying, man, this is my meaning. This is my reality. This is what inspires me. This is what lets me know that I'm successful. This is what defines me. This is my God. When we put Godhood upon it, whatever it is, eventually it will crumble. If it's a person, eventually that that relationship will become disformed. It will warp. It'll end up bent. You know, I've seen so many people, I've seen it almost even happen in my own life where you you place Godhood on a spouse or you, you place Godhood on a child and you say, you need to make me feel good about me. You need to make me feel all right about everything that's going on. And they can make you feel good about things, sure. But they're never going to be able to be God in your life. And you're always going to be disappointed with them. Why aren't you making me feel better about my crappy day? Why aren't you making me feel like I'm successful in my life? Why can I not live vicariously through you? Why can you not make any mistakes that I made? You need to be a better version of me. As, As soon as we put Godhood on a person, they crumble. As soon as we put Godhood on a thing, man, I just need that house. I just need that car. I just need that career. Something will happen to it. That's life. Something will come along and it will affect it. It will, it will change it. It will degrade it in some way. And, and instantly our heart is broken. Oh, I was made redundant. That shouldn't be a big deal, but my personality, my, my, my soul essence was tied up in that job. Now that I don't do that, who am I anymore? Ah, oh, we lost our house. Something happened to it. 
that there was repairs that were needed and we couldn't afford it. And, and this whole side of the house is, is moldy or it's, the foundations are gone and, and, and it shouldn't mean everything to me. But, but who I was was tied up in the fact that I owned this house and I could be secure financially. And now that it's fallen apart, I, I feel like I'm worth nothing. See, why were there so many suicides after the global financial crisis? Because people were tied up in their money. Who they were was defined by their assets, by their ability to earn People that were inordinately rich suddenly lost millions and were still very well off, but they weren't a billionaire anymore. They weren't the most successful of the most successful, and their meaning in life was gone. It was stolen from them. See, idols always kill Isaac. They take that good thing, that gift from God, that thing that should be cherished and beautiful and lifted up, and they turn it into the ultimate thing, and it corrupts it, and it corrupts us. See, my second point this morning, is that sometimes God seems to be killing us when he's actually saving us. See, think of the disappointments in your life. If you look at them a little bit more closely, you'll probably realize that the most painful of them had to do with our own Isaacs. Those things in our life which, which we had invested into such a level to get a, some joy or fulfillment back from them that only God can give us. Those things in our life that we tried to fill the space that only God can fill, right? The most painful times in my life have been when, when my Isaacs, my idols have been removed or threatened. And all of a sudden, I don't know who I am anymore. I don't have that. I can't do that. I'm not calling myself that anymore. I don't know where I stand because that was who I am. And when that happens, and it will happen, we can respond in one of two ways. Right, the first way that we can respond is, is we, can, we can opt towards bitterness and despair. Right? We can feel entitled to, to wallow in these feelings right? because we've worked all of our lives to get to this place. I've worked all my life to save up enough to buy this house, to pay off this mortgage, to reach this level in my, in my career. I've worked all my life to, to raise these children and now they're treating me in this way. I've worked all my life to love this person and now they're not returning this love to me and we, we end up in a place of bitterness and despair. What is even the point? It's, it's not sorrow. It's not just a temporary sadness, which is totally understandable. It's a despair that never leaves. The color leaves our life. Things lack meaning. And, and, and color can leave our life. We can have a period of sorrow that's important and that's, that's human and that's necessary, but despair is when the joy never returns. When we only ever know sorrow because we only ever found joy in this thing that was stolen from us. See, so often in life when something seems to be killing us, it's actually God saving us. See, and, and when we're in that space, we can feel at liberty to, to lie to cheat, to take revenge, to, to throw away our principles in order to get some relief, in order to claw it back in some way. I've been demoted, but if I lie about what my workmate did, maybe I'll climb the ladder. Man, my, my, my house is, 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 my mortgage is getting too much, but if I lie on this tax return, I might be able to get just enough money to get back on top of it again. Man, I just, I need to sell some assets and, and these aren't in great shape, but if I just overvalue them a little bit, if I overcook the books, my business will get back and it will be okay. And we start destroying the idol from the inside out in an effort to save it. Or, like Abraham, we can take a walk up into the mountains. We, we can say to God, God, I, I see that you might be calling to live my life without something that I never thought I could live without. But God, if I have you, 
If I have you, then you're the only wealth. You're the only love. You're the only honor. You're the only security that I really need. And see, most of these idols, they can stay in our life. They can remain in our life once we've demoted them below God. Right, then they won't control us with, with anger or pride or anxiety. But, but sometimes we make the mistake of thinking if, if, we're, if we're just willing to think about offering them up, that they're not idols anymore. Right, that the story means that all we have to do is be willing to part with our idols rather than actually leave them behind. Right, if Abraham had gone up into the mountain thinking all I have to do is, is put Isaac on the altar, feign towards maybe grabbing the knife, not really give him up, he would have failed the test. See, but Abraham knew that God would, would protect Isaac. Abraham says to his servants, we will go to worship and we will return. He was fully ready to kill his son, something that I still can't wrap my mind around. But he also knew that he fully believed in a just and glorious God who would not make him. He was in a position of, God, I will sacrifice this if you ask me to. But at the same time, I believe you won't make me. He held both things in his hands. They contradicted each other to the, to the nth degree, and yet he trusted in God. God, I know that you are not like the other gods. You're not an idol. You will not kill my son, and yet I'm going to offer him up to you. And yet, I'm not just going to feign obedience. I will actually say, God, if this is what you want me to do, I will do it. See, something is safe for us to maintain in our lives only after it has really stopped being an idol. And, and that can happen only when we are truly willing to live without it. When we truly say from our heart, because I have God, I can live without you. And I don't fully understand that. Right? That's, that's a hard place to be. But, but at the same time, if we can't do that, we will crush the thing. We will destroy it. We will kill it because it will become an idol and it, nothing but God can handle the weight of Godhood. See, just as I conclude, if I could get the, the band up. So often in our lives, a, a good thing becomes the ultimate thing. right? And we need to realize that idols cannot simply be removed. We can't just take something out of our life and say, that's, that's not an idol anymore. My career is not an idol anymore. My family are not an idol anymore. It's, it's not enough to pay mouth service. It's not enough to just say it or in, intend to do it. An idol must be replaced, right? And the only thing that can replace an idol that works, the only, the only place that, that you can, the only thing you can replace an idol with that won't just lead to another idol is God. Right? See, see, idolatry is not just a failure to obey God. It's when we set our hearts on something besides God. And see, this can be remedied only by repenting that we have an idol, but, but not just by repenting. Right? We can't just repent that we have an idol and then use our willpower to try and live differently. I don't know about you, but I've tried to do that. Oh, that's not going to be the most important thing to me anymore. Man, my, my career is not going to be the most important thing to me anymore. My, my intellect is not going to be the most important thing to me anymore. This isn't going to be an idol to me anymore. I'm just going to willpower my way out of it. And eventually, it creeps back. See, but instead, Jesus must become more beautiful to our, to our imaginations, more attractive to our heart than our idols. We can't just 
just remove the idol. We have to replace it. See, if you uproot an idol and fail to plant the love of Jesus in its place, the idol will just grow back. It's just like a weed. You'll pull it out and it will be gone for a season. But before you know it, you'll be looking at a weed fully grown and thinking, when did that sprout? How did that get there? See, see, rejoicing and repentance must go together. We need to, yes, repent. God, I'm sorry that I made this an idol. God, I'm sorry that I put this in the place that only you should be. But, but repentance without rejoicing will lead to despair. It's hard. It's sad. It's religion. It's following rules and regulations. And eventually, you'll just get tired. But, but rejoicing without repentance is shallow and will only provide passing inspiration instead of deep change. God, I love you more than anything. God, I love you more than anything except for that now because this is quite attractive to me. See, but it's, it's when we rejoice in Christ but, but also repent that our idols are dispelled because we need to rejoice because idols are almost always good things, right? If we've made idols out of work and family, we don't wanna stop loving work and family, right? We don't wanna go home today and be like, look, I'm sorry, family, but you cut. I just can't give you any of my heart. We need to be roommates, right? But we need to be out of love. But we can only do that by, by replacing the idol with Christ. See, rather we want to love God so much that we're not enslaved by our attachment. See, rejoicing in the Bible is something much deeper than simply being happy about something. To rejoice is to treasure a thing, to look at its value to you, to reflect on its beauty and importance until your heart rests in it. See, rejoicing is a way of praising God until your heart is rested, until it relaxes its grip on anything else that it needs. You can't wrench an idol from your heart. You can't tear it away. Your heart's grip is too tight. Instead, you have to rejoice. You have to push into God. And as you do that, your heart will let go of the idol. The idol will fall away. You won't throw it away, but it will drift to its right place till its good place where it should be, where it can be in its fullness, where it's no longer under the pressure of being God, where no longer is it trying to meet unreasonable expectations. See, the good thing doesn't lose its value. It doesn't become less to you. It just becomes what it should always have been, a good thing, not a God. 